Welcome to The Blueprint, a podcast for you and your life as a professional. The people I have conversations with don't have to be famous. They have to be making a living doing what they do. My goal is to get you the information you need to make real decisions. Start a career, change a career, get your money right and get a handle on your operations. This is a career day in a box podcast. I am Philip Llanos, and maybe this is the blueprint for you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. I have another guest for you that is on the ballot for 2020. This is Scott Andrew Yang, a district attorney in the county of Los Angeles, who is on the ballot hoping to be moved up to judge. Now, uh, this is something that it runs twofold, right? Judges are usually either elected by somebody else uh, higher up in the food chain, or they can also be elected by the people. It's just part of the process. They want to have uh, a give and take there, right? They want some people elected by others, and some people have to be elected by the people. And uh, when I when I took a, a some time to do my research on who to vote for, I myself found that some people were harder to discover than others, and some people surrounded themselves by different types of people. And when I came across Scott Andrew Yang's information and how easy he was to to be accessed publicly, given the type of work that he does and the fact that he has a passion for uh, defending people who have experienced sex crimes, uh, it really painted a picture for me for someone that I wanted to get to know better and talk to and bring to your attention and also show you the types of questions you might want to ask. Now, this is somebody who doesn't come from an affluent background, but made something out of his life and, uh, you know, is is of Asian descent and, and, and showcases a story that allows empathy to take place with uh, people of all ethnicities, not just one. And I think that's important to take into consideration. So without further ado, because the episode in itself is really a powerful story, uh, I bring to you Scott Andrew Yang. Hey, Scott. Yes, sir. So a very basic podcast. It, it, it originally was a career-driven podcast for sh- teaching people who were looking to shift careers or start a new career on how th- what that looks like a day in their life, let's say, for an example, of a district attorney, if that was a path somebody wanted to take and they were young. Um, okay. But given, given the time and given the, uh, the current political climate and <laughs> social climate, uh, it's important, I think, to, to bridge the gap between um, both worlds. Now, uh, I spoke with two other people for different parts. They were on different, different positions of the ballot. One was, uh, Sharnay Tunson. Um, okay. the other, um, Mayanna Dellinger, uh, so far. Okay. Um, and I'm very thankful to also be able to be speaking, speaking with you. So, uh, basically if you can reveal anything about like how it is, someone should do research. Um, also, of uh, what your platform is, some things that people may not know about the the responsibilities of your role and how much influence you actually have. And then finally, I'll bring it to a close with a summary and offer you the red carpet to promote anything you'd like to promote. Sounds good? Okay. Sounds good. I appreciate that. Uh, sounds extremely fair. Um, I, I will say that before I begin saying anything, I think that Judicial candidates are a little bit more unique than your traditional um, political candidates who are running for different offices. Mm-hmm. Um, judicial candidates are actually guided by Canon 5 of judicial ethics, which is promulgated by the American Bar Association. And what that basically means is that uh, judicial candidates cannot comment 
um, on anything, on any particular political issues or issues that potentially can can be, you know, basically appear before the court, and we would have to make a ruling if I'm so honored to be able to win. So that being said, um, I think that if the question uh, in terms of how do you research for a judicial candidate, I think a good, broad um, uh, research on Google as to what has this particular candidate done in their lives, right? Um, you can go to my website or even my opponent's website and have a, you know, a read through in terms of what our background is like. But certainly our own website is going to tell you essentially, well, lack of a better term, good things about us, right? And uh, and they tend not to have any negatives or anything like that. So I, I would do, a, you know, just a straightforward Google search on the name of the candidate and to see what sort of comes up. Then I would um, look into, in terms of um, the the extensive um, opinion pieces that have been written uh, on both of us. And there sort of be the judge as to um, which candidate is more in line with what the voter is looking for. Um, and also look at our endorsements in terms of um, uh, who have endorsed us, uh, which organizations, which individuals, I think is also extremely telling. And our background, what have we done in our lives and what the motivation really is. Um, you know, my opponent has been endorsed by the L.A. Times. And the interesting thing about that is they didn't write much in terms of why they believed that uh, my my uh, opponent is superior to me. Uh, we both were rated by the L.A. County Bar Association as being well qualified for the position, which makes the choice even more difficult, right, in terms of like, you know, it's much simpler when one person is well qualified and the other isn't. But here we're both well qualified. So now the the... the the average voter has to sort of look into further as to, well, they're both well qualified and what makes one person stand above. Um, and I think that comes down to integrity. Uh, has either one of the candidates said or done anything that sort of, you know, uh, skirts the truth? Um, and I, I would challenge anybody to find anything in my background as far as uh, have I ever said anything that is you know, sort of walking on the line between a truth and a lie. Um, and I've never done anything like that. I've, I've spent my entire career, basically the first five years in civil litigation, in both state and federal court. Um, I did a, a bulk of my time uh, during my civil practice uh, representing pro bono. Um, a lot of clients who, families who were, because I grew up poor. I grew up in Echo Park during the oh, 1980s yeah and wow. yeah so i yeah from the 80s i know right <laughs> um, and yeah, that's that's big echo park 80s yeah i went to betty placentia elementary school which was formerly called uh, cortez avenue or cortez street elementary uh, i went to virgil junior high school right in vermont yeah. um and uh, uh between yeah i think it's beverly and first street and then I was one of the bus kids um, who happened to fall right in the border for U.S. Uh, Ulysses Grant High School in Van Nuys. So I was I was bused to to Van Nuys every day, and then um, I eventually got to UCLA and I graduated in '97. 
Um, and then I went to uh, Southwestern University School of Law. So after having spent five years in, in civil practice, uh, my mom passed away in 2006, and it sort of brought me back to sort of the basics in my life. I was getting a little tired of just working and hustling for uh, uh, private clients and the practice, oh, you know, those at many times it was much more lucrative being in, in uh, public practice. Um, I sold my office and uh, joined the district attorney's office in 2008. Um, ironically, I actually had applied for the public defender's office as well during that time, but uh, the DA's office hired me first. And really? uh, so I joined. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Steve Cooley offered me the job and, and uh, so I, I took it. And I think it was like several months later that the public defender's office asked, you know, if I was still interested. And um, uh, by that time, I was already uh, past my training period in the DA's office. Um, so I, I started with the DA's office in uh, 2008, and I've been there ever since. So I've, I've spent almost 13 years. Uh, it will be 13 years May of next year. Um, and immediately I gravitated toward prosecuting specific types of crimes, which were sex crimes and child molestation sure. and child abuse. And I spent pretty much the last eight years doing that. Um, uh, right now I'm assigned to the special, to the, uh, sex crimes special unit division downtown of the DA's office. And prior to that, I spent 10 years in the Antelope Valley in a uh, unit called the VIP unit. It's, kind of a weird name, but it stands for Victim Impact Program. And we worked very closely with the Special Victims Bureau of the Sheriff's Department in Antelope Valley. And um, and I was, you know, several years ago, I was given, I was assigned the case of Gabriel Fernandez. I don't know if, if um, yeah. uh, you heard of him. And uh, so John Hatami and I were both, uh, we were both assigned to the case and uh, we did the trial in 2017. Um, and at that point I said, I was getting a little tired of looking at, um, crime scene photos of children. Sure. So I asked to be transferred to, um, the sex crimes unit downtown. And since then I've been uh, doing, you know, uh, serial rapists and, um, child molestation cases. So I, I like to think that I've, you know, uh, have dedicated my life the last almost decade or so to specifically fighting for those most vulnerable in our society. Um, I could have gone to the hardcore gangs division or major narcotics or, you know, a variety of those type of specialized units, but I chose specifically sex crimes and, uh, and VIP because they're the most meaningful um, type of work. I think where you have people who have been most severely impacted at the hands of someone else. Um, so I'm proud of my record. I'm, I'm extremely proud of, of what I've done and uh, uh, for, you know, uh, I could have made more money, I guess, in private practice, but I enjoy what I do. Um, after this period of time, I decided that, um, you know, I didn't want to be an advocate anymore. I think I, I have enough experience to be a neutral, to sit in the bench and to, and to see the evidence and hear both sides. Um, sorry, that was my <laughs> daughter in the background. You're fine. Um, 
so you know um so at this point in my career i i felt that it was you know at a point where uh, i have seen enough in terms of litigation you know i have almost a hundred jury trials under my belt you know and i'm talking about almost a hundred you know jury trials having jurors uh, and this is one of the one of the major distinction I have with my opponent is he tends to like to skirt the truth a little bit. And he says he has 500 trials, which is um, fairly um, it sounds really good. 500 trials. But he never really says jury trials because mm-hmm. he's adding because he's counting bench trials. He's counting temporary restraining order hearings. He's counting preliminary hearings. He's counting basically any contested hearings as a yeah. trial. And there is a difference. Um, it, there is a difference. Absolutely. In fact, one of the longest trials I had was in Gabriel. That lasted almost four and a half months. You yeah. know, so we're talking about living the case for four and a half months in addition to the three years before that where we were doing motions. Um, so, you know, there's a distinction there. And so if based on based on that calculation, and I and I did recently look into how many preliminary hearings I've done and and motions. I have almost two thousand preliminary hearings and motions. Right, if it's a matter <laughs> of quantity. Right, exactly. But you know, but, but when we're specifically talking about jury trial preparation and you know standing in front of uh, you know members of the community and arguing the evidence, um, I have almost a hundred, and and I think that's a very tough number for. Um, for my opponent to to meet, and that's why he's using the larger number by adding in hearings. But right. um, you know, because there there are prosecutors and and very well respected defense attorneys whom I know who've got thirty five years under their belt. And when I when I asked them, do you have anything near five hundred? You know, they're sort of laughing. They say that's not humanly possible to do. Um, you know, right. Right. When I it think comes the, to four the, month long cases, each one right. is taking half it, a year almost. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, the average trial I have is two weeks. So and I I think there was one year where I actually did 14 jury trials. And that was, you know, um, (laughs) that was a hell of a year. Extremely. (laughs) Right. It's a hell of a year. Pretty packed in there. Right. So (laughs) and that was a lot. So even if you times that by 10, you're talking, you know, 140 jury trials. Um, And even if you multiply that by 20, that's 280. Um, so, you know, it's just an outrageous number. But um, and so you look at these kind of things, you know, the kind of experience that I have, you know, and not just my background, but my my the training I've received and the experience that I've been able to obtain. Um, and I've seen everything from both sides. I've seen prosecutors who have been heavy handed uh, to, you know, defense attorneys who, you know, like to skirt the truth. And I've seen phenomenal lawyering from both the prosecution side as well as the defense side. So, uh, you know, I, I think that on a comparatively level playing field, comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges, I think um, I like to believe that I'm a better candidate for the job. And um, uh, and I hope that I can bring that experience to the bench uh, and uh, help move justice along. And that sounds really corny, right, when we say move justice along. But you know, I think one of the critical factors that judges should have, one of the great characteristics is humility. Sure. Um, oftentimes, oftentimes judges, you know, sort of put on the robe and uh, somehow feel or believe that, or for, sometimes they might, I would say, even forget that they are still the servants of the people. 
And um, right, that's an important I, I can thing tell to you. <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I remember when my parents had a little uh, business in Monterey Park, and um, they did not understand what a triple net lease was. You know, and I and you know they thought that when they signed a lease, whatever their rent every month is is what they paid. Right. But they didn't under yeah they didn't understand that the landlord can tack on, you know, common area fees, taxes, and whatnot, and give them an extra bill toward the end of the year. Mm. And so you know they were they ended up being evicted and then going to court. And of course, you know, my parents didn't have any money. So they went into court not having, you know, uh, a total understanding of how the process worked. Um, oh, I see. Basically, right. So basically, you know, they first they were scared. Sure. I mean, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And right. So you have a judge who sits there and you have the the landlord with his attorneys and you go in basically not knowing anything. And I remember, you know, my dad saying, you know, I remember him saying, you know, look, we've, we've, we went to court and I couldn't say these things, you know, I, I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell the judge, you know, I didn't feel like I could tell him everything from my side, even though he brought an interpreter and, you know, the judge sort of kept on telling him, look, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear it. So I think the important part of being a, a, a good neutral is, you know, just show somebody respect. You know, sometimes people, I don't think everyone who walks into court expect to win. Sure. But they do expect to be treated fairly and to have at least an, an, an opportunity to be heard. And I think oftentimes, you know, we sort of forget that, that when someone walks into court, you know, they just want a fair shake. They just want someone who says, okay, please go ahead and tell me what it is and ask questions, you know, in, 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 in a respectful manner. And even if they were to lose and walk out of court having lost, at least they feel like they've, they've had a fair shake. And that's what I hope to bring to the bench. No, that's, um, that's that great. Empathy. I can see how uh, an experience like that might have inspired a career in law in general. You know, yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that, um, uh, you come from a background that uh, is looking to build for the first time ever as a generation in the States and Americas to then also right. take it to the next level and, and, and study litigation and, and things of that nature. Now, I, I do I do know that uh, trials that are tried by jury are different from other trials, such as uh, ones that may uh, involve uh, sort of like a lease sure. and so, so things of that nature. So um, right. when, it, when it comes to being a judge in a, in a trial by jury, right, that's where most people are tried by their peers. And I, I was wondering if you could give me more insight into how it is the judge uh, uses the information by the by the jury and not just the other uh, prosecutors and, and, and defendants, but uh, public defenders, I mean, uh, how, how is it that you come to your conclusion? Because I, I imagine, is it the jury that gives the final word on what's going on, on what the sentence is going to be? Or is it, is it the judge that sure. takes the jury's verdict and then determines whether that sentence is fair or not? Sure. That's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, jury trials, uh, you know, basically originates from the sixth amendment and um, you have an absolute right to a jury trial, but you also have a right to waive that jury trial 
and have your case be heard by a judge, right? A bench officer. So it's, it's a bench trial. Oftentimes, defendants simply will not agree to a judge hearing the case because, you know, the, the judge oftentimes is not that easily swayed by emotions, by lawyering or anything similar to that. So oftentimes people will assert their right to a jury trial. And um, so we pick jurors from the public, maybe not right now because of the pandemic, but sure. when it was going on, uh, misdemeanor jury trials, um, both sides were uh, entitled to basically pick from pool of 35. And uh, if it's a life felony, then they have 65, right? Um, and so what we are looking for in a, obviously both sides are looking for the most favorable jurors sure. for their particular, for their particular case or crime. And so what I generally look for, and it's kind of weird. I think every attorney sort of has their own way of looking at things. Okay. I, I understand that when I ask a certain question of a juror, um, and we ask the standard questions, um, it's also an opportunity for us to sort of introduce some of the basic facts of our case to the panel. Right. And we test to the jurors um, some weaknesses in our case just to see what their response is. Okay. Give you an example. Um, because I do a lot of sex crimes cases. Oftentimes my, my victims are children and children tend to uh, clam up when they're sitting in front of a, of an audience and an adult is asking them questions. And when they clam up, sometimes they'll just nod their head, shake their head, or they'll say something, you know, briefly, just so that they can answer the questions. Right. And sometimes under cross-examination, younger children tend to just agree for the sake of agreeing, okay, without having thought through their answers. And sometimes a good defense attorney can make it look as if the child is lying. You know oh, what I'm saying? Wow. So. Yeah, so so a good defense attorney will ask the child, are you sure dad or your uncle or someone touched you down there? And when you say down there, you're talking about your leg, right, or your thigh. Right. And the child, even though they know that's not the answer, they'll say yes, just so that the person will stop asking them questions. You know? Yeah. So I broach that to, so I will bring that before a jury right away. You know? I will ask them. You know, any anybody here believes that a child will answer questions just so that they can stop the questioning. It's kind of a broad and general topic. Then we get narrower and say, and ask anybody here believes that children can oftentimes mistake, mistaken certain things, but ultimately still tell the truth about what had happened. And after that, I, I usually ask, you know, questions like, you know, anybody here, baseball fans, it sounds really dumb, right? But baseball fans and or basketball fan. And I ask, you know, well, who won the last NBA championship? And everybody raised their hands, you know, it's the Lakers. OK, right. uh, what was this? What was the score? And you'll get five different answers, you know, mm. oh, it was 118 to 106 or 118 to 108. OK. And I would tell them the exact score. 
Okay, sir, you know, perspective juror number five, sir, you you said it was 118 to 106, okay? It was actually 120 to 108, okay? Sir, are, were you lying when you told me it was 118 <laughs> to 108? I see. And he would say, so he would say, no, I wasn't lying, but your memory is just different, right? You just right. forgot the numbers, right? Yeah. Does that change the fact that the Lakers won? No. <laughs> and so that's kind of like, that's kind of like the the things I help to det- I help to illustrate that even though we can make small mistakes in terms of the scores or how many assists or how many points a certain player makes, it doesn't really change the fact that the Lakers in fact did win. You know. So when a child, so, yeah, right. Right. So a child is even worse. <laughs> yeah. You know, a child's going to say, "Well, it was sixty to one hundred and fifteen, and." But it doesn't change the fact that the child still has this, this, and that. Right, that it still happened. And, yeah. Right, it still happened. Um, but I don't file cases, um, at least that's my, you know, my office's policies. We don't file just from one child's um, reporting. Mm. That's not enough for us to file. We need, we need further corroboration. So oftentimes it would be multiple victims, right, who don't know each other. Um. It's because that was, that would show a pattern of conduct, or there was DNA. In fact, I have a case right now where there, uh, my defendant's 81 years old, and um, uh, his six-year-old granddaughter says that uh, he had uh, touched her, and he's denying, denying, denying. Well, we found DNA. <laughs> oh wow! Inside of her, you know. So that's a definite filing because it's undisputed. Um, so it's one of those things where, you know, I I tend to be very careful when I follow those type of cases because, you know, you brand somebody with a scarlet letter of being a sex offender. I mean, that is, that is destructive to someone's life. Um, the other way too, what it does to a child, if it actually did happen. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's that balancing factor right between what we can do and what we ought to do right um are are two very different things and so i think that from the perspective you know um of having done that for many years it's i i think it's 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 a very valuable thing that can be brought uh to absolutely to the court how does the role change when you now are placed in the seat of a judge versus uh, a prosecutor or a public defender uh with the way that you, you look at the, jury. you know, Philip, that's, that, that is such a great question. Philip. And I'll tell you this. A lot of people tend to think that prosecutors, once they get on the bench, they're going to be hard as nails, right? right? Because they, it's hard for them to take off the prosecutor's hat and put on a judge's hat. Okay. Right. That's, that's the common, that's a conventional wisdom and believe it or not. And I'm not saying all judges are like that, but they're always going to be a few who come to the bench and they have forgotten to take off their, their prosecutor's hat. Okay, but I think for the vast majority of prosecutors who take the bench, they tend to they tend to lean harder on the prosecution than they do on the defense and vice versa. Lots of public defenders who take the bench tend to be much tougher on the defense than they are in the prosecution. So I asked one of I I asked a judge um, who was appointed by Governor Brown to the bench, who's a former public defender. And I asked him, why is it that you seem to be much tougher on the defense than you are on the people? 
And his answer to me was, because I know all the bullshit they play. <laughs> right. Right. You know? And, and that's, and that is so, and that's kind of, um, I'm sorry, was I not supposed to say that? Can oh, you? no, no, you're fine. No, you're fine. Okay. You're fine. Okay. Uh, cursing is fine here. I, I don't have any, uh, anything against it. Uh, in fact, it, I think it humanizes a little more because it's true that there, you can't sugarcoat that when it is something that people do. I mean, it's part of the art right. of litigation, right? It is an art. I know you have Correct. to Correct. It is an arts. art. Absolutely. Theater arts. Absolutely. I tried. I looked into it when I was in college for like two semesters before I dropped out. But that's a, another story. But I did. Oh. I was surprised because, I, you know, I have a background in acting. So I was like, theater arts? For education, yeah. even if it's business law, it's a requirement to be able to present in a in a fashion right. that, that persuades. Right, and that so. is such a critical skill to have. Um, had I known what I know now, I think I would have taken a lot more English classes <laughs> and a few and a few theater arts classes. It, it's it would make you a far better um, advocate. I get. I think. Tell me more um, about that. I so, mean, the, 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 the career, is there a, is there a, looking back on it, was there a shorter path to success to becoming an, an attorney? Um, and just in the beginning, cause I, I imagine it was a sort of up and down path and it wasn't until looking it back is. on it now that you're like, you know, this could have been made so much easier if I had known. Yeah. I, I think, I, I, I think law school is not a fun place to be at. Um, it certainly was very, very uh, difficult, at least for me. I mean, I, I don't know about other attorneys, but for me, law school was very difficult because I just, you know, I was sort of shocked when I was told that your entire grade for the class, you know, rests on one final exam. Oh, wow. Okay. Every class is the same. No midterms, um, no papers, nothing. One final exam. That's it. Determines your grade for the entire semester. Um, and that was a complete shock to me. How can that be? And it's great on the force curve, at least the law school that I went to. Um, so it was very competitive. Everybody just sort of wanted to um, outmaneuver your your fellow students. And um, uh, had I known what those tests, you know, my parents weren't attorneys. I went I went to law school with a couple of friends who now are good friends of mine, whose fathers were uh, were attorneys, their grandfathers were lawyers. And so they they sort of went in knowing that you know you you didn't have to worry about being called in called on when you're in class, you know just stay focused on on start preparing to write your final exams, um, and if you write those well your grades will be great, and uh, so I was you know kind of dumb just worrying about every day being in class being called on, and uh, while I was sweating that you know these guys were kind of like relaxing starting their outlines already. So, yeah, there are a few things I think would have made uh, the law school experience for me um, a little easier. Um, so I think that for at least the next generation, you know, if, if any of my children decide they want to go into law school, I think it would be helpful for them. But unfortunately, none of my kids want to go into law. <laughs> so, you know, my, my oldest, my 20-year-old wants to be a, a school teacher, which I think is a, is a great and noble f- profession to go into. That's so, amazing, yeah. Um, yeah. So kind of, we kind of, I I don't know if I can pass it on to my kids, but you know, there's always a leg up when there's, when you've, you know, when you're somebody in your family telling you this is what you should do, or this is what you should, should expect. Well, there might be an opportunity here in case anyone who's listening has been considering law school or is probably in the middle of it. Uh, If you could offer them anything the way you would tell your kids, what would be one thing you could leave behind? Absolutely. 
don't worry about being called on in class, you know, <laughs> sort of look, you know, because I, you know, some of the, some of this, my fellow students who did very well started practicing, you know, they, they immediately went to grab all the old final exams, you know, oh, wow. and, oh yeah. And they started learning how they, they started looking at those old final exams and they start to see a pattern in terms of what that professor tend to like to ask, you know, certain topics or areas of that subject that they like to ask. And they start to write, practice writing out their, their exams. And, uh, and they would bring it to the professors and say, hey, what, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And the professor, you know, most professors are, are generally um, very, you know, they encourage their students to do those kind of things. So I'm not trying to say that, that the students, those particular students did anything wrong. But they just knew how to study. You know what I mean? Right. So they start writing out the exams and they would bring it to the professor and the professor would then give them, you know, rough grading and then give it back to them. Well, if you do that three, four times, eventually you're going to figure out what the professor likes. Absolutely. <laughs> or, do- or doesn't like, right? And you didn't. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, I, I'm like sitting in my sitting in the library, still trying to memorize the letter of the law. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, right. And And that's not and that's. That's just wasn't efficient use of my time. Sure. Um, so I, you know, and so that's that sort of made law school much more difficult. But I, I kind of figured that out after my second year. Well, after first year, going into my second year. Um, so yeah, but you know, your your grade and your class ranking and everything else really hinges on your first year in law school. So first year is very very important. Um, and uh, so. You know, it's it's a learning uh, it's a learning curve, and you know, I have to say, I'm I'm extremely blessed that you know, in spite of all that, um, I sort of, you know, got the training and the experience that I have, and I'm you know so grateful for that. Yeah, no, that's 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 amazing, and um, I uh, I'm I'm searching for for how else to get more information without um budging into compliance because you know i i do worry i've worked with with like attorneys for social media and things like that before and uh, also cpas and i know there's a lot of compliance around it because it's it can be dicey and uh it's it's tough especially on the fact that uh you are on the uh on the federal level to some degree on a lot of things that you're doing so it does make it difficult to inquire so some of the things i was hoping to ask you about in terms of like movements going on with like Black Lives Matter and all that. And, and I don't want to push, mm-hmm. I don't want to press on that. Um, but I, I, the reason I bring that up is because as a, as a district attorney moving into the seat of a judge, we, as you know, the, the, the criminal uh, justice system in general um, tends, mm-hmm. tends to be looked at in a certain way um, by a, a majority of people. And given your background, I, I know uh, to some degree uh, you, where where you might lean just uh, because uh, you know there's empathy there. You're able to to put yourself right. in those people's shoes and determine right. instead of what most people who might be removed from that reality and might have generations of family right. who've been in this country and um, may may not be necessarily um, a mixed race or or a uh, ethnic uh, minority who may have trouble empathizing sure. or sympathizing. Um, with with the certain things that are happening, I mean, nothing is perfect, and there's always two sides, right. no matter how thin you slice the bread. But uh, I imagine, there we go. I, I imagine if you get elected, uh, based on on uh, everything that a listener may have heard here, 
and sort of see the humanity behind you and uh, where you're coming from, which I, I, I was able to hear resonate in the way you were expressing yourself, um, because there is a line to be towed there, um, without saying too much, right? Uh, I, I, I do see how uh, stepping into this into the seat as a, as a judge and then having to deal with uh, with juries. Uh, is, is there anything that a judge does the way you did as a prosecutor, where? Uh, you would ask the jury to sort of get a get a sense for where the jury is at and uh, to sort of make your case. Is is there something that a judge does to understand what the makeup of a jury is or um, who is prosecuting and how that might influence? Because, you know, everyone has their bias. Is is a judge responsible for looking at a prosecutor's history, a public defender's uh, history, and the the history of some of the jurors to determine whether or not those are going to sway what the judge ultimately decides? Um, I think that the ultimate, the the final outcome of a case, I think, still rests on the facts and the evidence. Okay? Okay. I do think that the skills of the advocate certainly helps to bring it to a particular outcome. But I do think that a judge sets the tone. Mm. You know what I mean? I think that the judge is able to um, bring to the table and and bring to the particular trial a uh, a certain it's hard to say but a, a sort of a type of feeling for both sides. And what do I mean by that? For instance, if you have a judge, and you know someone said to me that you can learn um, trial skills, right? You, I'm sorry, you can learn from a book. Um, that, to a certain degree, I think is good. I think there are very uh, there are great books out there. Um, Jerry Spence has one, uh, and exactly what you said. You know, advocacy is an art; it's not a science. It, it's, it has to do with the the way that the advocate feels. You actually feel from the jury, from their body language, certain characteristics of jurors, impermissible characteristics, race gender, disability, national origin, things of that nature, to ask the court to kick that juror off the panel. Okay? And it's impermissible. But a good judge can listen and see. And sometimes lawyers, I've seen this from really good, experienced attorneys, defense lawyers, with lots of years of experience, they want certain groups off the panel and they're determined to do it no matter what happens. So what they'll do is they won't kick consecutive jurors of that same group off the panel. See what I'm saying? Right. They're going to they're gonna hopscotch, okay? And they're going to ask very pointed questions geared toward one particular group over another that oftentimes has nothing to do with the case. Absolutely nothing. And I think oftentimes a a judge without a lot of trial experience might find those questions to be benign and -hmm. not even see it. Okay. But if a, if a judge who's had a lot of trial experience and have seen a whole myriad of, 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 of trial tactics and strategies, 
he or she can pick that out and say, no, you're not going down that road. Okay. Even without a Wheeler or a Batson admonition. And, wow. you know, I, 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 I don't know, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but if a Wheeler Batson motion is granted by the judge, meaning that judge says, you've been kicking these people off this panel because of a certain characteristic, because of race, let's say. Okay. That attorney has to report himself or herself to the bar. Wow. Because it's, con- it's considered discrimination. And Which is why they develop tactics to do it in a way where it doesn't that, seem obvious. That, that's right. But someone with your that's, experience who understands the art of a pointed question and how to create a jury that is favorable puts you in a position where right. now as a judge, you're able to see the tactics displayed by whether it's the defense or the prosecution and determine, okay, I see what's going on here. And again, correct, correct. the tone of Co- the proceeding. Correct. That's right. And you can do it in such a way where you cut them off before it even starts. Because once you kick them off, that juror is gone. And you can't bring that juror. I mean, sort of technically you can bring them back. But depending on how the trial is going, you've lost that juror. You know? So it's kind of like it's kind of like whatever remedy you give at that point, that juror has been excluded. So what you want is to cut them off before that happens. Sure. You know, having having a judge who used to be an attorney who has the ability to empathize with multiple ethnicities and understands both uh, the people who come from successful origins and the ones that don't is probably a more neutral choice to have than someone who comes from a long line of uh, uh, successful and affluent um, uh, family success. You know what I mean? Like, I think. And yeah, like, and, and yeah, exactly. And yeah, I agree. And and I think it's not, it's, it's nothing, it's nothing that, that is, you know, it's something you really can't be taught, but you're able to see it, you know? Um, and, and, and that's, that's very, that's very critical. Um, and, you know, because there's a lot of game playing in trial work and, uh, it's, it's the feeling that you get that you can justify it by seeing what's happening right in front of you. Hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and it's kind of funny, but I sat in a trial once and I said, here we go. And I even told my, I I had a law clerk with me during the trial. And I said, this is what he's going to do. He's going to kick this one off. Okay. This person is white. And everything. He's going to kick off this one and this one just to throw us a bone. And then he's going to kick her off. Wow. You know, and, and it, it, it went almost exactly the way we said, I mean, you know, it's like, he's going to throw us the bone here and he's going to get rid of her. And, uh, and you, and you just know that that was where he's aiming. And, uh, but you know, that is, and I don't blame him. I think that, you know, he's being paid to do a job or in the public defenders uh, uh, for a public defender. It's doing a job. Sure. Um, and honestly, I think most public defenders are far better litigators than private attorneys, mm-hmm. you know, because pub- I have tremendous respect for my uh, public defender colleagues. They work so hard. You know, they carry so many cases and they do their darnest. You know, they do their darnest. And. You know, and they're in trial with us all the time. And so I my I tip my hat to them because they are truly in the trenches. 
especially now during the pandemic. They're the ones who have to go down to the jails and talk to their clients. Sure. You know, they're the ones who are exposing themselves day in, day out. And I think the public just really don't realize how uh, the, the people within our society don't realize how hard the public defenders work. You know, a lot of people think that I'm a prosecutor and I have no I, I have no public defender friends. I just have prosecutors. That's not that's not even near the truth. Half of my friends are public defenders and half of my friends are, are prosecutors. And, you know, we just respect the work that we all do and not bring to the table anything that's personal against each other. And I think that's a tremendous um, experience and asset that all of us bring to society by being that way. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that the broader experience someone has uh, makes them a much more you know, maybe diverse is not the right word, but makes them more worldly in terms of being able to see things and the nuances that someone who hasn't had the experience might miss. That's all. Yeah. No, <clears throat> excuse me. I think, I think that was well put and, um, really, uh, there's really nothing much left for me to ask other than, is there anything, uh, you'd like to say to a listener listening now that all this has been shared, that they should take into consideration uh, once again as to why uh, they should really strongly lean towards uh, thinking about yourself for that vote. Um, again, you know, a lot of people are wary of politics these days and it, it yeah. makes it hard for them to uh, know who to vote for when they weren't educated as to how, how to sure. do their research and to top it off, sure. you know, uh, I hear it's very expensive to even put a 200 word um, uh, summary of who you are on even the sample ballot. It's something outrageous. Yeah. And then you you yourself have to put up some of your own money to be up there. So it, I know it isn't easy. And unless, unless you come from super affluent, you know, the, the prices they're charging doesn't mean anything to you. But right. given the fact that I know those things right. and that you still put yourself up here for, for being voted on, uh, you've got some skin in the game beyond just, oh, I want this seat. You put up some of your own money to make this happen, you know, so. Absolutely. So yes. what what would you like to say to my listeners uh, before we close out? Well, Philip, thank you so much for the opportunity. I, I, I thank you. You know, uh, you reached out to me and, uh, uh, you know, I, you've opened my eyes to some things that uh, I, I I never really knew much about. Um, so thank you for the opportunity. I, I think that. Um, Voting is such an important thing. Even if even if someone says, I'm not going to vote for you, Yang, that's okay. Just go and vote. You know, it's 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 our duty. It's our right to do so. And I think it, it's such a wonderful thing for, for someone to, you know, spend some time and to do the research on the candidates. I, I encourage everyone to uh, go to my website. It's scottyangforjudge2020.com. Um, you know, I also encourage them to Google my name. And uh, there was an article that came out last week that I thought was just, you know, so it was such a well-written article and it was in-depth um, in terms of the analysis. It's Met News, Los Angeles. Um, they did a very, very extensive, they did a very extensive analysis. Um, and the person who wrote it um, looked, was very fair, I think, asked, gave both sides an opportunity to clarify any points they may or may not have had. Um, and the Met News Los Angeles, um, after their analysis, um, and, and I'm honored that they endorsed me, 
Uh, and it was a lengthy analysis. It wasn't the LA Times who gave me two lines, uh, which still sort of left me a little baffled as to, you know, uh, why they ultimately came to the decision that they did. But um, I, I would encourage them to look at everything, look at all the endorsements, come and uh, see who they think they would want to have hear their case. You know, I, I think that's always a good test to use for judges is who would you like to have sitting there listening to you? Um, and when they've asked themselves that uh, and they're able to justify it with based on what they've learned, I, I think they're going to come to a great, uh, great conclusion. And uh, I hope that after they've researched everything that, you know, they will find that I am worthy of their support and their vote. And uh, so I'm I'm extremely grateful for that, and I'm and I'm grateful to you for the opportunity, Philip. Oh no, it's it's been a pleasure, honestly. Um, it was educational for myself as well, and uh, I can't wait to share this with uh, with the with the listeners. Um, it's just one of those things that I think it's 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 time to start making it a little more visible and a little more transparent because a lot of this is a mystery to people who have their heads down yes. busy with work and don't have yes. the skills, the soft skills to do the research. Even if they're college educated, a lot of the times people just sit there and memorize things. So taking time to critically think and understand things isn't a skill that's encouraged by the public education system. So things like this that give me the yeah. opportunity to sort of uh, publicly display how it is one can come to these conclusions, what kinds of questions they should be asking, and hearing from right. people who are behind the scenes, who are in the trenches, uh, doing the work, uh, and giving that different perspective, the other side of why it is you might have the motive to want to, because I, you know, I do know that some people are elected by other officials, but then there are people who want to take a chance right. to, to, to go further in their career. And that in itself is admirable, just learning about that transition in career. But then to also top it off with the, the amount of public service that goes into the type of career you've chosen. It's it's really admirable. I appreciate Yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you once again. I appreciate yours. And yeah, uh, I'll share something with you once this is done. Sounds good? Of course. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Blueprint. I hope it was helpful. And as always, I'm open to feedback. Please follow our guest where they directed you to. And also connect with me on LinkedIn. Or you can even get more personal and connect with me on Instagram. Either way, let's network. Let's build. And let me know who else you'd like to hear about. What other industries and professions you're interested in.